Good morning. So Steve and Josh have been taking us through Galatians, which is interesting and, and weird and, and all that kind of stuff. But I just want to remind you of what the, the, the sort of the subtitle for our series is. It's Gospel Partners, an invitation to participate in God's cosmic plan. So when Paul is writing to the Galatians, they have some things going on. But the biggest one is that people have started to teach that they have to obey the law or they're not saved. Now Paul is an expert in this area because he was one of the Jewish leaders at the time. He studied under one of the greatest rabbis of all time. And he certainly had his own followers. And as a Pharisee, he understood how to obey specific things, how to do all the right stuff. And then he meets Jesus. He has this amazing encounter that finally ties together all of his study, all of his life, and he realizes he'd missed something. And he doesn't apologize for missing it. He doesn't say, oh, wait a minute, i got to start over. Because what he met in Jesus was actually what the Word of God had been pointing to all the time. And one of the great things about that is once Paul is transformed spiritually, he's still a Pharisee. Why not? He still keeps traditions. Why not? If they're good. But now he does them because of his love for God, not in hopes of attaining God's love. So we're carrying on in Galatians 3, starting at verse 15. Read along on your device or your Bible, or it'll be on the wall for you there too. So he's trying to give an illustration here. He says, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. Father, again, we thank you for your word. We thank your spirit is here to teach us, and we commit ourselves to that. In Jesus' name. Once a covenant is set, nothing new annuls it. All right, so Dale and I have a covenant. Is Dale here? He's here somewhere. He's always hiding. I am going to mow his lawn. He is going to wash my car. We sign this covenant. We each keep a copy, so we know. But a few months down the road, I think it's working pretty good. I want to add something. So in pencil, on my copy of the covenant, I add, and will walk my dog. And I say to Dale, look, <laughs> now you've got to walk my dog. And he says, no, no, you can't just add on to it. You can't put something else there unless we both agree and make a new covenant. And that's what Paul's saying. He's saying that when God came to Abraham, he made promises. 430 years later, he comes along and gives Moses the law, but the law didn't change the promises. He's not tucking it in there, sneaking it in and saying, you've got to do more. The law had a purpose, a very specific purpose, and that's what Paul wants us to understand. So carrying on then. This is what I mean, he says. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. 
The law doesn't replace the promise. The law doesn't add a different condition to the promise. So why did he give the law? Next verse, if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise, very clearly. So the inheritance doesn't come from from obeying the law. It was never meant to. That was a misunderstanding. And we all fall for that son. By, By nature, we're religious. By nature, we sort of, in our own minds, make sense with the universe and our role in it and, and, and sort of think about higher power. It's, it's, as someone said, in each of us, there is a God-shaped hole. We are not like animals who simply want to eat, procreate, and sleep. We know there's more for us. It's quite natural to be religious. We all are. So then Paul says, why then the law? If the promise was good enough, if the promise was really what it's all about, why give the law? It was added because of transgression until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. It was given because of trans- it was given because of sin. It was given because there's a problem. That God had made this promise to Abraham, to humans. He said, through Abraham all nations would be blessed. But there was a problem. I am that problem. You are that problem. We we are not worthy of the promise. I cannot simply shake the mood off my boots and walk into God's house and say, I'm home. Aren't you lucky to have me? So the law was given so that we could see who we really are. It was given to Israel specifically, and some of it had a bit to do with culture. Most of it just had to do with God's heart and God's values. But when the people started to obey the law, they realized, we we can't do all this. We can try. We, We can break it down to 613 commandments. And maybe someone in their lifetime could do all those 613. And then the Pharisees will add more to protect those ones, will add other ones. We can do that. But it doesn't transform us. It doesn't change our nature. It makes us better humans. We get along better with our neighbors and relatives. But we remain unchanged, lacking what we need to have. But the purpose of the law also was there to show this is how you live out the promise. The commands of the Lord are there to to teach us how to apply that promise, how to live the promise. And yet, being fallen by nature, we don't see them that way. Carrying on then. In the law, is the law then contrary to the promise of God? Be careful. Because I took a lot of teaching as a kid, and I sort of came to this conclusion that, yeah, no, it's either law or grace. But no, we already see Paul saying, no, it's not one or the other. They both had their reason. Is the law then contrary to the promise of God? Certainly not, says this well-studied Bible scholar and Pharisee. But look at this next sentence. If a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. 
We need to underline that. We need to get that. And let's expand it. It's not just talking about the Jewish law, any law. If righteousness, if humans can be transformed into being right, simply by obeying a list of things, wouldn't that be handy? Don't we wish sometimes we could go to God and say, look, here's all the good things of my life. You, you know, we're buds, right? No. No. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. Any law, any checklist. Some people make the Ten Commandments the law for them. And they say to God, look, I'm doing them all. Some people make the Sermon on the Mount their law. And say, look, God, I'm doing it all. Some people make up other stuff. We don't drink and we don't chew and we don't grow with girls that do. That makes us good Christians. Where, where do we come up with these it's our nature again. We want to have a checklist faith. We want to know at the end of the day, we did good. We deserve whatever God has for us. We will never deserve what God has for us. And the proof of that is that Christ came and died in our place. So you see, when we stand before God in judgment, the assessment of all things. The father and the son still looking like a lamb that was slain will be there. And we get to stand before them and justify why we are there. In the words of Evangelism Explosion, why should I let you into my heaven, God will say. And our only hope is to point to Jesus and say, because of that, I'm with your son. His blood is on me. And God says, <laughs> welcome home, you get it. But you see, if I stand before God and I say, well, I prayed 12 times a day. I uh, memorized 14 different translations of the Bible. I gave all that I have to the poor. Gee, I'm swell. What I'm actually saying to God is, your son didn't have to die for me. I can do it on my own. I don't need the blood of the lamb. But you know what? When I tell God that, I am giving him one of the greatest insults of all time. I'm telling him, you didn't need to send your son to the earth. You didn't need to make him go through all that. He didn't need to die for me. I'm good. God will say, you don't understand, do you? Go to hell. What it comes down to is God's character. We either see God for who he is or we don't. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So the law is given so that we can struggle and fall and realize we cannot be good enough for God. We cannot do everything that is required of us. That's what the law was for. It was given out of kindness so we can see the disease. You don't want to go to a doctor and have him say, boy, you look great today, and you walk out two minutes later and drop dead. No, you want him to see the disease. You want to find out what's wrong. And the law was there to teach us what was wrong. Not to necessarily make us feel bad about it, 
Not to fill us with shame, but to say, you need a Savior, and I've got one in mind. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Carrying on. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law. You ever get that feeling? Oh, I'm just not good enough. I grew up in a Christian home. Went to summer camp, went to kids' clubs. I got saved almost every summer. <laughs> yeah. When I got my fire insurance in place. We were held captive under the law because after every summer, by the first or second week of September, I forgot about being a good Christian. It was too hard. It filled me with shame that I wasn't as good as my older brother and sisters and other Christians, and I missed the point. But I was captive under the law. I knew I wasn't good enough. And from God's perspective, that's a good thing. That's a step. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming of faith would be revealed. So then the law was a guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. The law is good. Because not only does it show me my weaknesses, it shows me God's character. God didn't sit down and say, let's see, what would be fun? Oh, yeah, let's make him do this. <laughs> let's make him. No, his desire for, was for us to be like him. So the law is the things that we would be doing if we were like him. We would be loving others is more important than ourselves. We would be giving here and doing there. That's what the law is. God's character in human flesh. But it doesn't replace faith. So again in Galatians, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ you are all children of God, sons of God, descendants of God, through faith. We no longer need the law to show us how bad we are. All we have to do is look at the cross. All we have to do is understand that if God was willing to send his son to die in my place, I must, <laughs> I must need it. Because he wouldn't do that casually, and he wouldn't do that if there was another way. Now that faith has come, we're no longer under the guardian for in Christ Jesus, we are all children of God through faith. We don't need to know how bad we are anymore. We just need to know how good God is. We just need to know how good God is. So there's a question then that I struggled with as a kid and still sometimes do. And I think some of you may. Is the law bad? Should we just tear out that part of the Bible and just keep the parts are all lovey-dovey and, and, and cuddly. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. What a verse. And the truth is, in our lives, we go through cycles. We can look at church history. There's this cycle where there's a a, a discovery of God. He reveals himself and people are excited and they want to make their lives reflect God and so they start traditions, the ways that they can honor God and love God and then slowly those traditions become just traditions. 
just about doing the right stuff instead of why we're responding to God. One of the most famous parts of this cycle is the Reformation. Medieval Europe had gotten so caught up in all the rules and regulations that they had forgotten about grace. So the reformers came along and said, no, it's all about grace. And they were right, and it was exciting. But if you go back now and look at the, the followers of those Reformation leaders, their traditions are full, full of just do this, do that. Because we get back into that period where we, again, as religious beings, we just want to do the right thing, know that we're doing the right thing. We go through this in our own lives, too. And we need that reformation every now and then. We get caught up in being busy for God and forget that we're supposed to be loving God. And every now and then in our lives, the Holy Spirit is merciful and he comes along and he says, stop it. You're saved by grace. That's our relationship. Do stuff, yes, but do it because we love each other, not because you feel you have to. Not because you feel you have to. Let's look at a couple other verses. John 1, 7. Now, this is a verse that sometimes be, can be confusing. Remember, these are translations. And the translators are incredibly intelligent and very often wise people. But they're still people. And they have a language and a culture of their own. So they're trying to put ancient documents in a language that we can understand. And this verse is a typical one. John 1.17, this is, again, the beginning of John's gospel. He says, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And in some translations, there's even the word but in there, as if these are two separate things. Law. Mm. Grace and truth. Mm. Pick one. But that's not what the verse is about. The verse is about God fulfilling his promises. And so law came, and then grace and truth came. So we understood the law. It's an ongoing thing. So it's easy for us to be confused by that sometimes. But let's look at a couple of Old Testament verses. Psalm 1, 1 and 2. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. Blessed? You want to be blessed? Live the law. Focus. Meditate on the law. It's not a bad thing. Proverbs 28.9. This one's really interesting. If one turns his ear away from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. <clears throat> if you ignore the word of God, your prayer is an insult. In Jesus' words, pray in my name. Right? We're supposed to pray in Jesus' name. That doesn't mean we tack that on as a little, you know, a good luck charm at the end of a... It means that we're praying according to Jesus' character, to Jesus' goals as we see them. We're praying in Jesus' name. Here he says, pray with your ear open to the law. Because if you're ignoring the law, your prayers are a waste of time. If you don't know God's character, why pray? Who, who are you praying to? If you're not asking for things that God himself wants... You're just insulting. He's not a big Santa up there just waiting for your grocery list. He's a busy, active God, and he's inviting us to be involved. So when we're going to do something and pray something, it better be in his name, according to his word. One more verse. Matthew 5, 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. 
not abolish the law and the prophets. Fulfill them. Demonstrate them. Show them in flesh and blood by someone who isn't raging with sin and contradiction and shame. He's showing us how to live the Word of God, is what he's saying. To fulfill those things that God requires of humans. Because those things that God requires are God's heart. His goals for us to be that kind of person. It's God's character. And Jesus lived out God's character. He demonstrated the value of the law and the prophets in human life. All right. Let's talk about the Canucks. They're having a good year, so we're not going to pick on them this year. But just imagine, right now in British Columbia, thousands and thousands of young hockey players are dreaming of one day playing for the Canucks. Good. It's, it's actually quite simple, but it's not easy. This is all you have to do. First of all, you have to have the desire. You don't just accidentally become a Canuck. You have to want this thing. And then you have to work at it. You gotta be skating. You gotta do the dry land. You gotta pump the weight. You you've gotta develop the skills. You gotta work. And then you have to be chosen. You have to wait till draft day and the Canucks say, uh, for our third pick, we pick Miles. There we go. You, you've gotta be chosen. But even then it's not enough. You've got to sign a contract. They're not going to let you in the dressing room or on the ice without a contract. Because what if you fall and break your leg? You can sue them, yada, yada, yada. Contract. You sign the contract. Now you are a Canuck. Now what do you do? Oh, nothing. <laughs> I made it. <laughs> no. You keep working. Not to become a Canuck, because you are one. You put in the extra effort on the ice. You work harder. Because of who you are. Well, there are some other people that might not want to do that whole route. They have the desire. They really want to be a Canuck. They work at it. We're on the next slide. They work really hard. They're skating all the time. They're playing in the beer league and scoring goals every night. They're doing everything that a Canuck should do. They're working hard. So one day they show up at the rink with their hockey gear and up to the player's entrance. They go walking in and the security guard says, oh, oh you're not allowed in here. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm a Canuck. I don't have you on my list. What do you do? I work as hard as they do. I score as many goals as they do. I'm really good. Yeah, but you're not on the list. What? Did, forget the list. I am a Canuck. I work so hard. But there's no relationship. There's no contract. They haven't been chosen. Going through the motions and working hard doesn't make you a Canuck. Trying to be good and obey the law, obey the law, obey the law, doesn't make you righteous in God's eyes. Let's transfer that to the kingdom. Desire, work, being chosen, signing a contract, and then more work looks exhausting. Well, here's the good news. For desire, let's look at Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. 
God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. The desire was God's. We were dead in our sins. We didn't even know what to want. We could do a lot of religious activity because it makes us feel better. We think we're supposed to be doing something like that. But the desire of a broken human isn't enough. We needed God to want us. The desire was his. How about the work? Romans 8, 3 to 4. God has done what the law, weakened by flesh. See, the problem with the law wasn't the law, it was us. We couldn't do it. That was the problem with the law. For God has done what the law, weakened by flesh, could not do. By sending his son in the likeness of a sinful flesh for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled. Who did all the work? He did. Jesus paid the price. Jesus lived that life. And then the draft came. Ephesians 1.4. He, God the Father, chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. Chosen. Yes. It was his desire and he did the choosing. What have I done so far? Nothing. <laughs> Up until this point, I'm still dead in my sin. I don't even know I could be alive. And then there was a contract to be signed. Romans 3, 24, 25. We are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Propitiation, paid the price, covered it, canceled it, to be received by faith. The contract is written in his blood. There are hints about this in the Old Testament. If we go back to Abraham for a second, when God gave him the promise, he made him go through a silly ceremony. He said, take a bunch of animals, cut them in half, and lay them open. That's a waste. But Abraham knew what was going on because this is how kings signed contracts. They didn't have the internet or CNN. So this is how they communicated the contract. The two kings would get together, fill out the paperwork, sign it, and together they would walk between the split animals. And the symbolism would be, if I break this contract, I deserve to be split in half like this. That was how they sealed the contract. It was a, it was a common ceremony. Abraham knew it. God says, split the animals. Abraham said, okay. And then some birds came beat them. And he said, no, 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 you're ruining my church. And then he saw going between the halves of animals, flame and smoke. He wasn't there. God was taking both sides of the covenant. He was saying, if anything goes wrong, I will be the one that will die. Not you, Abe. I will be the one that will end up like those animals. There's another hint with Moses. When we talk about the Ten Commandments, we usually think of them as five on one stone, five on the other. There were two tablets. But again, the tradition of the day is you take those two contracts, make sure they're identical, sign them, and then each king keeps a copy. So that if either king breaks it, the other guy can come along and say, look, 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 look. It's on this contract. You owe me whatever. 
for breaking the contract. God gave, possibly, I think this is how it worked. We're, we're not exactly sure, but to fit into the story, God gave two copies of those commandments, I think. One to ten on each stone. And then you would think that God would keep one copy and Moses would keep the other, but God says, keep them both, I'll give you a place to put them. And then they build a tabernacle with the Ark of the Covenant. He says, put both of those contracts in that seat. I'll take care of it. I'll keep an eye on it. I will watch and see if anybody breaks it, and if anybody does break it, I will be the one to pay. It's my problem, not yours. You can't handle it. <laughs> you can't do this stuff. But I know someone who will, and he will die for you. I will pay the price. God has done the work up till here. So what is our work then? Does that mean we don't have to do anything? Well, yes and no. We don't have to do anything to guarantee salvation. But what do we do? Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commands. Sounds pretty clear. If you love me, you're going to obey. And we know enough of Scripture and the stories of Scripture to realize that obedience is good for us, not God. God doesn't benefit. The, 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 the law that Moses gave was silly for its time. Most of the other laws, most of the other great traditions were all about appeasing God and, and, you know, just keeping him happy or keeping him busy so he doesn't send a thunderstorm or whatever. The laws that Moses gave love each other, serve each other, feed each other. If your enemy's ox goes off, you go get it for him and bring it back. Treat others as more important than yourselves. I mean, all these quotes from the New Testament, we actually see applied in the law. The law is good for us. We have better lives. We have better relationships if we follow God's word. More importantly, it's our way of showing God that we love him. That's why it's so important that we don't fall just into doing tradition for tradition's sake, because then it's no longer an expression of love. It's just religion. So we need to get back to grace. Well, here's the problem with the Galatian church. It's the Galatian problem, but it's a human problem. Again, if we look at the list of desire, work, chosen, contract, what they had fallen into was an idea of we have to obey the law. The desire was a human. And again, we all you know, have a desire to connect somehow with a higher power. But God didn't initiate it in that sense. It was just their desire. We're going to do this thing. The work was the law. We're going to obey the law. We're going to add extra laws onto the law to make sure you're obeying the law, the law, the law, the law, the law. And again, remember Paul's background. He grew up in that. He had his identity in that for a long time. Chosen? Uh, no. Didn't. Not really part of the conversation. Contract? Nope. We're just going to keep trying we're going to keep practicing and scoring goals in the beer league, and eventually they'll realize that we are a Canuck. No. No. I'm going to obey so many laws that God's going to have to let me into his heaven. No. No. So then what's the work? Well, you just got to work harder. Do more. Come up with more laws. A longer list. Try harder. But we'll never get there. No. 
That was the Galatian problem. But we're still left with the question of what do we do with the law? What do we do with the word of God? Do we have to obey it? Let's go back to Ephesians 2, 8, 9 again. Grace, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It's a gift of God. You didn't develop enough faith. God made you alive when you were dead. And it's not a result of work so that nobody can boast. None of us can ever say, I'm a good Christian. That's an oxymoron. If you're really good at doing Christian things, you're missing the point. You should just be loving God. But let's look, contrast that with what Paul reminds the Philippians. Therefore, my beloved. So he lived with them for a while, and now he's away writing a letter. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now. So that when, when Paul was there, they were good. He says, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Boy, a lot of Christians want to erase that part from their Bible. No, 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 it's just my salvation. God, Jesus died for me. I can just float through life. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling? He is not saying earn or guarantee or protect. He's saying apply it. Take your life seriously. Live by the word of God with fear and trembling because you're in a sinful world that is trying to get you to do anything but the word of God. So take it seriously. Live your salvation. Celebrate your salvation. Live it out with fear and trembling because there are a lot of other options out there and a lot of things that we could do that would not be loving God. Take it seriously. But it is God who works in you. And here's one of those things we have trouble balancing again. I'm doing this, but God's doing it in me. Yeah, yeah. I apply myself to it, and God does the work. Yeah, yeah. Both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He gives you the will, and he does the work. You've got to be walking in his word or else... You don't know his will, and you're far from his work. Let's look back at the end of Galatians 3 again, the portion we looked at. But now that faith has gone, we're no longer under the guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God. You're all sons of God. We no longer need to know how bad we are. We only need to understand how good God is. And our focus is not trying to be good enough for Dad to love us. No, the love is unconditional. But we get to use the word of God to love him back. You know, one of the saddest things in couples therapy is when both partners come in and say, I tried to love him. And they both did. But they were speaking two different languages. They didn't consider what the other person would see as love. I did everything that I wanted. They did everything they wanted, but we weren't giving each other what we need. After how many years of trying hard, the relationship dissolved. You want to know how to love God? He tells us. You can't just decide on your own what you think. Oh, this will be good enough for God. No, no, no. His word says, this is how you love me. And if you love me, you'll obey my commands. It's always been that way. 
really, right from the beginning. Let's take a look for a second at the beginning of the Ten Commandments because the way it starts is really important. So looking at Exodus 20, this is the first few verses. God spoke all these words, saying, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall know where God's before me. You shall, blah, 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 goes on with the you shalls and you shall nots. What are the actual Ten Commandments, though? There's different ways of actually numbering them in there. We'll go to the first one. Most Christian traditions do something like this. Some start with commandment number one. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Some traditions don't like including stuff about Jews in there, so they just start with, you shall have no other gods before me. Starting right off. Ha! Let's get, let's establish the standard. That is not how Jesus and the Jews of his time and the Jewish tradition understood the Ten Commandments. First of all, they didn't call them commandments. They were the Ten Words. God spoke all these words. And the first one is this. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So? What, what am I supposed to do? I want to get right to the do's and don'ts. No, 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 no. Until you remember this much, the other nine will not make sense. Until you remember that it's God who has saved you, the rest of the commandments don't make sense. Until you... As long as you remember that God is the one who's reached out to you. And he's saying, this is how you can live. If you forget that, don't worry about the other nine. They're just going to make you feel inadequate, make you realize that you can't do them. The first commandment, the first word in the Jewish understanding is knowing who God is. Now let's respond. We're not going to do this, and we're not going to do that, and we're going to do this, and we're going to do that. From the beginning, the law was always a sign of God's love. But if we don't understand that God's a God of love, the law becomes so cruel and cold. It always begins with, this is what I've done for you. You want to read an interesting book, a book that is more about love than any other book in Scripture? The book of Deuteronomy. We call it the book of the law. <clears throat> Go through there and underline every time you see the word love and see who is loving whom. The law is all about love. It's about applying the character of God. We have to know God first. We obey in order to love God. Jesus said that. We obey to love God. We obey to experience God. When we follow his word, we, we understand the relationships. When we serve someone else, we, we understand the value of that, Oh, human value. This person may not look as successful in me in life, and that absolutely means nothing. They're just as precious to When we obey the law, we see God and his heart. We honor God. People watch and say, why, why are you doing that? Why do you put your money there and not there? Why do you buy those and not these? Well, I, I just want to make sure my entire life honors God because I love him. He loves me. To become like God. Don't forget that our human journey is just to prepare us to become more and more like our dad and eventually we'll just be like him because we'll see him as he is, John tells us. But until then, it's from glory to glory as God moves us forward. We mature step by step to become more like him. 
so people can look at us and say, I know what family you're from. I taught 21 years. I was also the fourth of four children where my parents were high, high school teachers. I was known by every name except my own most of the time. You look like, <clears throat> most teachers just called me down. Because if they put a first name, it would be my sister, my brother. They, I just call them down. They know that I look like a down, and I act like a down. That's when I was a good thing. As a teacher, it was the same thing. I, I see kids' faces. I, I subbed the other day, well, this was a couple weeks ago, and I looked at a kid, and I said, without knowing their name, I said, I know your mom and dad. I taught them both. They just looked so much like their parents' combination. It was just it was a little bit. <clears throat> Do people recognize your dad when they meet you? Do they say, I know what family you're from. You're just like him. Well, there's a bit of changes, but I, I can see him in you. If you love your dad, you will become more like your dad. We'll close with this. And I wanted to use this slogan again that we've followed. It's an invitation to participate in God's cosmic plan. What we are doing is not just doing something good enough on earth. We are taking part in the universal battle that will one day have Jesus on the throne and sin and death defeated. We're part of that. We are the ones that get to carry not only that message, but the love that that involves to give people hope. Obedience of the law is not just for us. Following the word of God is not just for us. It really does serve our communities. So this is an invitation to participate in God's cosmic plan. Philippians, again, this is a celebration of your salvation. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling and joy. For it's God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. What are his works? What's his will? We get to find out in Scripture, and we get to live them. Lovely. Worship team, come back up. We'll have prayer teams for you here at the two corners, and also a team in the back. If you'd rather sit in the pew, they'd love to pray with you about anything. If you want to pray for someone else, they will do that with you. If you need prayer and support for something you're going through, they would love to embrace you and lift you up to God in that way. It's God who wills and works in you. So listen. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the blood of Christ, the only thing that makes us good enough for you. We ask that by your spirit you help us love you in response. And we thank you in Jesus' name.